So welcome back to another episode of She Dynasty. This is a special edition. We are reading the second essay in the She Will Overcome essay challenge. And I'm super excited because the essay that I'm reading today is the very first one that was submitted to the contest. And as soon as I read it, I thought, you know what, this is a really important story. And um, I'm going to read it. And at the end, we are going to speak with the author. She's going by the name Kate. It's actually not her real name, but she would like to protect her identity and that of her families. And she's sitting here with me now, and we'll have a quick discussion with her at the end of the reading of her essay. But before that, I would like to introduce you to my daughter, Arielle Hatton, who I often talk about on my podcast. So Arielle is on the committee that helps decide which essays get read, and this one really resonated with her. So Arielle, tell us, why did you like this essay so much? Well, what I really liked about this essay in particular is that it talks about an extremely important subject matter. It talks about social anxiety and depression, which is something that is extremely relevant in society today, especially at my high school, um, but it's something that's not really talked about enough. So... You also liked that there was an interesting point of view. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the author offered an extremely different perspective on the topic of depression. She talks about how, while she's not the one who's battling with this depression and social anxiety, her and her family are also extremely, extremely um, affected by this. Yes, I totally agree with you. So many of us have family or friends that deal with depression and anxiety and they are suffering so much, but it's also those around them that suffer, and we have to consider what they're going through also, and that's what this essay really touches on, and I think that's why we both loved it so much. All right, well, let's get started and read Kate's essay titled, The Worst 13 Days. I said goodbye to him as casually as I could, like he was just going to the grocery store, like I wasn't wondering if it was the last thing I'd ever say to him. I worried that if I let down my wall, he would too, and he'd talk himself into staying. After all, it had taken him three hours to load his single backpack into the car. It would be easy to take it out. But now, he was in the car, and as his older sister, I had to be the one with strength. I had to be the one to shut the door. Inside the house, I broke. I'd been a sheet of ice, slowly forming cracks under the weight of his looming departure. And now that he'd gone, the cracks all ruptured at once, shooting frosty fissures through my heart. I sat on the cold limestone floor, clutching my knees, back against the garage door, sobbing. And no one was there to see it. I felt invisible, devastated by his departure, and exasperated by coming in last place, having forced myself to take an emotional back seat so that my parents could focus on the child who needed their attention more. Three weeks before, Dylan had left for summer school with my mom. Two days later, she called my dad from the hotel room she shared with Dylan to tell him that their son was refusing to move into his dorm. And then later, that he was dropping out of school altogether, 
and then again later that he'd actually already failed out of school. He'd never even registered for the summer session. Dylan had made the trip up there knowing all of this. He had no money and nowhere to live. Riddled with anxiety, he lied through his teeth to my parents. He only confessed everything once he had no other choice. My mom's presence had backed him into a corner of truth. Given his struggle with depression, what would he have done if he had gone alone? I managed to convince my parents to let him come home. He needed time to feel like he'd be okay. We decided together that they would let him stay at home for at least two weeks before trying to help him figure out a plan for himself. And for those two weeks, he was the only person I hung out with. Dylan and I had always been very close. Growing up, my older brother had been a difficult child and occupied my parents' attention. So Dylan and I learned to turn to each other for help. On top of that, we had the same sense of humor and understood each other on a level commonly found in twins. We had two and a half years between us. Having him home again after the summer school scare felt good. I knew he wasn't in a good place, but I selfishly loved having my best friend around the house again. We lunched regularly at Mel's Diner in West Hollywood and spent afternoons coming up with new card games. We laughed all the time. I started to think that he was actually doing well. But then I started work, which meant he'd be alone all day. Not only did I miss what had become our routine, but I worried about how the isolation would affect him. One night, I came home particularly late from work, having gone straight to my best friend's house after. I locked the garage door behind me and turned to find my mom waiting for me in the hall. I felt like a teenager caught breaking curfew. Where were you, she demanded, as if she was a prosecutor cross-interrogating the defendant. This sort of ambush was uncommon. I was 23 and my parents respected my independence. Even in high school, I didn't have a curfew. I looked at her suspiciously. At Lydia's, why? Your brother is leaving in three days and you won't see him for seven months. But I guess Lydia is more important. I found out like I should have already known that they had found a program to help with his social anxiety. It would have guys his age, trained therapists, and personal trainers. It would help him get back on his feet. He reluctantly agreed to drive with them to St. George, Utah to check it out, but my parents told me privately that if he refused to enroll, they'd tell him that he couldn't come back home. So when I watched him go that Labor Day, after three hours of watching him pack the car, I did so with the knowledge that he may soon be on his own, in an unfamiliar city with little money, no car, and crippling depression. And I asked myself the worst thing I ever asked. What would my family be like with only two children? I called my parents the next day, and they told me they had left St. George. When I asked if Dylan was in the program, they both said the same thing. I hope so. Anything I asked them was met with a rehearsed answer, like they'd committed a crime together, and they thought they could outsmart the police. I found out a few days later 
that they'd left him in St. George to fend for himself after he'd refused to check into the program. His psychiatrist told me this information, not my parents. I texted him memes after he left, usually a few times a day. He never responded. He ignored my calls too. In fact, he had completely cut communication with our family. Our only window into his life was the bank account he had shared with my dad. Meals at Wendy's and a room at the Motel 6. It was impossible not to picture him terrified and alone in a dirty motel room, Wendy's wrappers littering the floor. I left him voicemails begging him to call me. I switched between sending him heartfelt messages of love and stupid memes I thought that he'd like. I tried to say anything to get through to him. He called my dad once and then hung up before he could answer. When my dad called back, it went straight to voicemail. And then his debit card ran out of money and he switched to cash. Just like that, we lost our lifeline. He'd been missing for seven days and it was time to call the police. After the police checked on his well-being, one officer told my dad, your son is okay. He has a place to live, but because he's not a minor, we can't tell you where. My parents booked a flight desperate to find him, with only an old debit card statement as their guide. Meanwhile, I just had to wait. I felt like I was watching Dylan slowly drown from behind a sturdy glass panel. No matter how hard I tried to break down that barrier, I'd never reach him. I flew to Salt Lake to see my boyfriend while my parents were trying to rescue Dylan. In the airport bathroom, I saw a little boy who looked exactly how he had. The boy laughed at puddles on the sink. The tears forming in my eyes drove me from the bathroom. I wanted to warn his mom. You think you'll have that carefree boy forever, but one day you'll wonder where he went. Everything reminded me of him. A saxophonist we liked went viral and I couldn't tell him. My Uber driver played my least favorite song, one that had become an inside joke between us, and he couldn't tease me about it. And every Wendy's I saw taunted me. And then it was all over. I found out over text once again, feeling like I should have already known. No one even told me until I asked. 9.12 p.m., 13 days after I said goodbye, have you heard anything from Dylan? 9.14 p.m., yes, he enrolled in the program yesterday. In the coming weeks, my calls still went straight to voicemail, and my texts still went unanswered, but I had to have faith that he'd reach out when he was ready. Yet I fell asleep every night wondering why he wouldn't call. And if he was truly getting better, wouldn't he reach out? Was there anything I could say that would compel him to call? The radio silence ended after a month, the day before my birthday. He'd listened to the voicemail I left a few days before, crying into the phone about how my boyfriend and I broke up. I guess he realized that I was struggling too, that I missed him more than he realized, and it was the first time we spoke since he had left. All of a sudden, everything was normal again, on the surface. With a direct line of memes going back and forth between us, I stopped wondering if our relationship would ever go back to normal. 
My parents badgered me with questions, and I always gave them the same answer. I don't know how he is, but I can show you the meme he sent me. He still isn't talking to them. Thanksgiving came and went without him. Christmas is coming up, and we doubt he'll be there. My only consolation is knowing that he's somewhere more important, somewhere where he can get better. I told my therapist that I'm having a hard time dealing with his absence, and it's difficult for me to talk about it because of my family's unofficial don't ask, don't tell policy. My dad shuts down, and my mom opens up too much. It sounds like there's no room for you to express your feelings, my therapist pointed out. But how can I claim to be devastated when the whole ordeal is a million times harder on him? There's room for everyone to be hurt, she told me. You feeling sad doesn't take away from his sadness. I believe the opposite. I still don't talk about it. I don't like opening up to people who don't know me well, irrationally worrying that I'm coming off overly self-pitying. But I made room, here in my writing, where I can be sad and hurt and devastated, where I can exist too. So that's it. That's the end of essay number two. Hi, Kate. Hi. How are you? I'm good. It's pretty cool to have my writing read out loud. I'm not going to lie. So you heard my essay and you decided to write about a snag that you felt or are in process of overcoming. What compelled you to want to tell your story? Honestly, it was hearing yours and how raw it was and how powerful it was. And I realized that you know, we all have a story to tell, and I wanted to put mine out there too. Right. Well, I think that you're incredibly brave because you're talking about um, something that, you know, you haven't quite overcome yet, but something you're kind of smack in the middle of trying to overcome. And when I read it, I um, identified with it because I have some loved ones that are also dealing with um, some depression issues. And, you know, it's a difficult thing to deal with because as much as it's hurting the person who's dealing with it. You know, the, the loved ones of that person are also suffering. And, you know, it's hard because there's not always a, a remedy of how to fix it. So tell us, how are you coping with it? I think a big part of it is just trying to recognize that it's valid for me to feel sad and upset about this. And that, yes, I'm not the one personally going through it, but that doesn't mean I'm not affected by it. Right. And do you have any contact with Dylan right now? Every so often we send videos. We've sent like a ton of baby Yoda pictures recently to each other, but it mostly is me just sending things and hoping he's going to respond. Right. So it's just, just having a little bit of communication with him is kind of enough to get you through just knowing that he's working on himself and trying to get better. And just the fact that he's even responding because there was some time where he wouldn't respond. Exactly. There was that whole, I think it was two weeks where he just was totally MIA, not talking to anybody. And even if I'm the only one he's talking to, and even if that's sporadic, it's something. Right. And you wrote in your essay that your parents made a very hard decision. And I was really kind of touched by that because I understand that sometimes those hard decisions have to be made where they wouldn't let him come home because he had to figure out what he was doing. How did that make you feel? I was very torn on that because I knew deep down that it was the right thing to do because he had to start taking responsibility and he had to figure it out. 
but it was also extremely painful to know that someone I cared deeply about was on his own with very few resources and just not knowing what to do. Right. And so tough love sometimes is the answer. You know, sometimes people have to feel um, some of the pain to understand that they have to make changes in their lives. Oh, totally. It was something that I think that they wouldn't have done because it's so hard to do, except that they had been told over and over again by the program that he's in that he probably won't check in at first and that if that happens, they have to be okay just letting him go. Wow, that must have been a really hard time for you guys to just like not know where he is, not know where he was staying. And again, you guys had that lifeline just like watching his bank account, um, you know, where he was spending. But then when that went dry, then all of a sudden it was gone. Yeah, and it was weird too because the transactions are delayed. And so we'd know a day after everything. And then when we realized he was out of money, it was like, okay, we need to act right now because we have like a day left. Right. And so as soon as you realized he was out of money, that's when your family kind of stepped back in to help. Yeah. So tell us, how are you coping with it? I think a big part of it is just recognizing that it's okay for me to feel hurt. It's okay for me to feel affected by it because I am. And even if I'm not the one directly going through it, it's still having an impact in my life. Right. I guess there was probably some moments where maybe you were feeling guilty just because he's the one who's going through it, but you are having and experiencing pain as well. And so all of the attention is probably going to him um, from your parents, but they don't understand that you're suffering because of what he's going through as well. Exactly. And on just to add to that, they're suffering too, and it's their son And so then I don't feel like I can go to them and say, hey, I'm in pain because I feel like I need to be there for their pain. So who helps you through this? A big part of it is my boyfriend. I referenced him in the essay as we had broken up, but we have since gotten back together, very similar to your essay. And um, he's there for me a lot. And then my close friends, but I'm still learning and I'm learning how to open up to my close friends too. And they know my family and they know what we're going through. But my closest friend who I've known since childhood, it's almost impossible for me to talk to her. And then my other best friend, the only reason that I was able to open up so easily to her is because her older brother actually went through something extremely similar. Right. And so just having that commonality makes it easier. Well, I really want to thank you for sharing this story. I think that there's going to be a lot of people listening that um, are really going to connect with this. They are probably dealing with something similar. And I think the beauty and the power of these stories is how um, vulnerable and raw and open people are willing to be. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So I hope that uh, if you're listening, this will inspire you to write about a snag that you have overcome or are in the process of overcoming and you will submit it to our contest. So please, if you would, email it to info at shedynasty.com and title it, She Will Overcome Essay Contest. Your essay can be 1,700 words or less. Please give it a creative uh, name or title. And again, the subject matter is about overcoming some sort of a snag or challenge in your life. And I can't wait to hear your stories. Thanks for listening.